0: Bill's going to talk about five, six, and seven, and Mark's going to
1: talk about eight, nine, and ten, and then we'll have some time for sharing. And at eleven thirty, I guess I'm just going to have to unplug the microphone and and chew you all out. So let's get started. Good morning. My name is Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I want to say how privileged and honored I am to have the opportunity to speak. This is my first IDAA meeting, and I'm a relative newcomer um, to uh, recovery. I've been in the program about two years, and um, sometimes I feel pretty good about that when I'm at home uh, in in our local 12-step groups. But, gosh, I've come here, and I I realize uh, through the meetings that I've been here so far that I really don't have any anything worthy of y'all's atten- of your attention um, I've certainly received a lot more than I, I could ever give um, I'm going to do a little bit different this morning and um, Mark and I uh, did not did not coordinate very well exactly how we were going to do this so we're sort of winging it but uh, I want to speak briefly about the um, fifth sixth and seventh promises and then I want to really sp- speak to you about how I have tried to be painstaking about this phase of the development, um, I I, I, uh, I think that it was appropriate this morning that someone mentioned that um, about how important it is to be painstaking. These are the ninth step promises, and uh, I want to read a few things that I have written in a in an effort to to uh, work my eighth and ninth steps. Um, the fifth step says, no matter how far. It, down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And this is a uh, promise, I, I think I said step, I, I apologize, it's a promise. This is a promise that I um, struggled with, to be quite honest with you. I was one of the very lucky ones. I was an um, exception that proves the rule, um, in that I was intervened upon very early in my uh, in my addiction and alcoholism. And I have everything that's good in my life I have to owe to the Alabama Physician Health Program and the people at Bradford. Um, they uh, saved me from myself very early. So um, I have a lot of yets in my story, and um, I struggle with that. John and I have, have talked about that um, at length. This is the Alabama crowd, by the way. They're down here supporting us. So uh, if they start throwing things at me, you'll know who it is. But I, I struggled, though, with uh, the first step. And um, I sp- spent a lot of time talking to Dr. Olson about that when I was in treatment, about how um, I did not have the opportunity to go as far down the line as um, I would have if I had not been intervened upon. And I was very, very, very lucky. I, I uh, did not have to go to jail. I did not get a divorce. I did not have to um, suffer a lot of tremendous uh, financial or professional consequences. And I know I realize that it's very important to always say yet at the end of those sentences, and I'm not arrogant about it at all. It's just a fact that I was very, 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 very lucky. Uh, I think God tapped me on the shoulder, and and that didn't work. He kicked me in the butt and sent me to treatment. But I've struggled with that. When I went to treatment, I struggled over the fact that... um, that I felt quite different from a lot of the people that were in treatment. I defined alcoholism and addiction based on the external measures. Um, I, I, I thought for sure there was no way I could possibly be an alcoholic because I had not had a DUI and I had not been to prison. I still was married. I drove my Porsche to Bradford, and, um, and I was doing fairly well. I made more money the year I went to treatment than I will this year. Um, so... <laughs> And so that's part of my program, by the way. Um, So I I really had a hard time believing that I was an addict. I knew I had a drug problem; Uh, that was very obvious to me. Uh, But I didn't think that I was an addict. I just thought I needed to get the drugs out and and go home. I begged them, I begged them for days to just send me home and put me on random drug screens. And um, I, I was very certain that I could abstain from from drugs and alcohol. And I realized today that if that would have happened, that I would have subsequently destroyed everything in my life, because I was, I was hell bent on that path. So even when I got back out of treatment and into AA, I, I struggle with how far down the scale we have gone. A lot of times, you know people will say, um, "You know, I, I, you, were, you were telling my story," or I heard this guy who was telling my story," and very oftentimes I think, well, they 're not telling my story." Um, I have had, on occasion, difficult times relating to some of the horrible things that I've heard that went on in people's lives. And I do realize that you have to always say yet on that. I, I realize that the inevitable consequence of this disease is always the same for each of us, and I was just lucky. That's just that's just a fact. I was just lucky. But fortunately, um, as I have g- gained a little bit of experience and time in the program I do believe that my experience is benefiting others. I um, speak a lot to the local physicians, a lot of whom uh, probably don't belong in these rooms, but who have struggled on their own about whether they have a problem. I've had the opportunity, we, li- we live in a college town, and there's a lot of uh, kids that um, experiment with drugs and alcohol. And indeed, again, many of them may not be alcoholics, many of them may be. And uh, I think they-, they think of alcoholics as somebody living in a gutter. And uh, and have destroyed everything in their lives, and um, I seem to have found some opportunities to speak to some of them and tell them that that um, alcohol has alcoholism has more to do with the reasons that you drink than the quantity. And so I feel like I've uh, I have benefited others to a certain degree, and I certainly hope that as I have more time in the program, that this promise will continue to come true every day. I think that. That's a, a very important part of it. The sixth promise says that the feelings of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Well, I uh, I never had a feeling of uselessness, so uh, the first part of that sentence does not really apply. I uh, I think most people that know me will tell you that I suffer from whatever the opposite of that is—grandiosity. Um, Chuck's been Chuck's been giving me a hard time about that this weekend, and I do tend to be very egotistical and grandiose and arrogant. Uh, that's a that's and that's bred deep within my DNA, and I have a very difficult time struggling against that. But the self-pity part of it, I can, I can tell you that I struggled with that. My wife and I went through a uh, traumatic event very early in my disease process, and I use that as an excuse, to be quite honest with you. I, um, I was mired in self-pity and anger. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to talk about the details of that, but suffice it to say that I was angry enough to where I felt justified in acting any way that I wanted to. I, uh, I felt that if you had been through what I had been through, then you would drink as well. And uh, to be quite honest with you, drugs and alcohol were my only coping mechanism. Um, and it was a coping mechanism that ended up becoming bigger than the original problem. But I was mired in self-pity for a long time. And even for the first year or or longer of recovery, whenever I'd tell my story, I would tell people. I would always preface it by saying, "Well, this happened to me," and then I started doing these behaviors, and um, and I always did that. Whenever I'd tell my story, I had to justify it. I had to say, "This is uh, this is what happened to me," and and then I began using drugs and alcohol. And um, I was very ashamed of that, to be honest with you. And I was very quiet about that when I was at treatment. And it has taken me a long time to deal with the fact that I'm just plain—I'm just very plainly an alcoholic and an addict. And um, and life is not perfect for anyone. And uh, normal people, when they go through tragedies, don't drink and take hydrocodone. And I do. That and. Um, so fortunately, that feeling of self-pity is starting to disappear. I can get into it very quickly. I can get into uh, making excuses for myself very quickly. And I struggled with this being a disease as well for a period of time because it gave me an excuse. It took the responsibility off of me for, to a certain extent. And as I've learned more about the concept of it being a disease, I've uh, been able to get away from some of that. And then the seventh promise says, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. And that promise is, again, coming true every day. I'm a very selfish person. I, um, I, I think that of all my character defects, that is the most glaring and the most uh, difficult to deal with. I tend to be, everything's, you know, well, they said at treatment all the time, oh, it's all about you. Well, it is all about me. And, um, and I, that is my, when, when I am stressed, when I'm upset that you know, when you push the reset button, that's the mode I go to. I go into take care of bill mode, and I'm not proud of that. It's uh, caused a quite a great deal of pain for a lot of the people that I care the most about. But losing interest um, in myself and selfish things and gaining interest in others has really manifest thus far in two areas. First of all, personally at home. Um, it's really helped me with my relationship with my wife and my family. Um, my wife was uh, she was treated, I, I treated my wife like an unequal member of our relationship. I was the moneymaker and the doctor and uh, the playboy, and she was there strictly for my uh, convenience, and I'm ashamed of that. I never meant to do that, but I, I became that person. My children were strictly there for my entertainment. I I took no responsibility in in raising them. I let their mother raise them, and I came home and played with them every night and did all the fun things, and and I'm ashamed of that. I really am, and I'm trying to do better. And then professionally, especially, um, and we have talked about this in a few groups this week, Losing interest in selfish things and gaining interest in others means that I practice differently than I did before. I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor. and what I, I make my living doing elective surgery. Um, there are a few very clear-cut indications to do surgery in ENT, but there's also a lot of gray zones. Uh, when do you take a kid's tonsils out? When do you put tubes in their ears? When do you operate on someone's sinuses as opposed to treat them with further antibiotics? And um, the early part of my practice, my motives were not... Purely what's in the best interest of my patients, but the motives were uh, getting a new Turbo Porsche next year, or um, getting the bigger house, or buying my child a new horse. And I, uh, I operated a lot in the gray zone, and I was very nervous about that all the time. I was always, um, I was always, I always leaned toward doing procedures. I guess I should put it that way. And um, and I, I was worried constantly. I was worried that I would. Um, have a misadventure and perhaps that I had not been completely justified in taking the patient down that path. And um, when I got out of treatment, I determined that I will not do that anymore, that I will do everything I can to be 100% sure that my motives are for the best interests of my patients and not for my pocketbook. And, again, that's very difficult for me. It's difficult for me to be honest about that. And um, what I've found is that I have completely lost any guilt or questions associated with uh, things that don't go perfectly. Things don't always go perfectly, at least not in my practice. And um, when I know that I've tried everything short of operating on people and when I know that I've done my best to, to make that decision not based on my self-interest, I don't feel guilty about it. I feel bad and I want to I fix things. But, you know, complications happen. And I try to do my best to avoid that, but I don't feel guilty because I I really think that I'm I'm trying at least to keep the patient's interest interest in mind and my self-interest at bay. So those are the promises I wanted to speak about. And then what I I really wanted to do, and I'm going to try not to be so long-winded, I wanted to talk about uh, what we briefly discussed, and that was, being painstaking about this phase of our development, and I am early in the program, as i said i 'm only two years in, so I have a lot of a long way to go and I need to work these steps multiple times. but it turns out that i 'm um, from Alabama and i 'm a surgeon, so i 'm not very smart, and um, I have a hard time thinking uh, in my own head. My neurotic mind does not analyze my neurotic mind very well. And so I tend to have to write things down. And I I like to write. Um, If I would have been bold, I would have become a writer or a songwriter when I was in college, but I was too scared, so I became a doctor. Um, But I want to talk about working the ninth step. My circle of people that I hurt was, fortunately for me, fairly small but very intimate to me. And so as part of my ninth step, I have been trying to write things down the way I feel and trying to be honest and vulnerable about that. That's very, very difficult for me. That's not my nature. And um, I'm hoping, John and I were talking last evening, I'm hoping that one day I can express things uh, spontaneously and honestly verbally. But uh, at this point I'm not there yet. I have to write things down. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to stay upbeat about this. If I get emotional, it'll be a disaster so um, I'm going to take you fishing this morning. And so uh, that's, that's the first thing I'm going to do. I brought several of these, but I'm going to read two of them for you if if you guys will give me permission. Um, and the first thing I want to do is take you fishing with my little girl. And if, if you have a little girl, think about her when she was nine. Uh, you can think about the boys, too, but I have one of those, and they're not nearly as good as the girls. But... Uh, Think about a child that you love when they, were, when they were children. That's the best part of our lives, I think. And I'm going to take you fishing with me and Kelsey. I'm going to stay upbeat about this, too, so if a pause, just bear with me, if you will. No, no pressure whatsoever. Yeah. This is called Kelsey and Me. Kelsey and I sat on the bank of our pond last Sunday evening and listened to the yearnings of the frogs and whippoorwills. She is nine years old, and I am a thousand. These nights together are my treasures and my sanity, and I savor each moment that we sit in silence. She is my firstborn child, my daughter, my pride, and my heart. Each time I look at her, I see her mother. She has the same chestnut eyes and russet skin. For reasons I will never understand, God chose to give me two angels, one to marry and one to raise. Why a man as undeserving as me should have these blessings is beyond my comprehension. Kelsey has a Zebco 202 reel on a Walmart rod and a blue Plano tackle box. I gave her the rod and reel for her last birthday, and the tackle box was a gift from her grandparents. The tackle box originally contained bug spray, a plastic canteen, candy, and some hooks, bobbers, and sinkers. She had a fish stringer at one time, but she threw it away because she always lets them go. Her reel broke last week when Scout, my bird dog, I accidentally knocked it out of her hand and onto a rock. I asked her if she wanted to get a new one, but she did not. Instead, we fixed it with a couple of zip ties that we found in my truck, and she has continued fishing with it like it was never broken. She is a creature of habit like her mother, and she does not welcome change, and I find this quite comforting. I can still recall the first time I took her fishing. It was March of 1997, just before she turned four, and the brim were on bed. The three of us were visiting my parents in Alexander City, Alabama, where my father has a small fish pond. We bought a tube of crickets from the fish hook, and we fished from a small john boat all afternoon. The bluegills attacked our crickets, and we caught more than we imagined possible. It was Kelsey's first time fishing, and she was beside herself with excitement. From the second that her yellow bobber first danced on the water, she was as hooked on bluegills as they were on her. She has now graduated from worms and crickets to artificial lures. She and I have tried almost every weapon available to entice a brim to bite. We have spent several hours at Southern Anglers and Walmart searching through the racks for our latest secret weapon. Kelsey is most often armed with a beetle spin with a white head and a neon yellow body. She fishes with the same grub until it's been eaten beyond recognition and then she reluctantly and carefully selects a new one. She has mastered the arts of cast, set, and retrieve, but she still lets me help rig the gear and unhook her catch. A couple of weeks ago, I challenged her to a fishing contest. We rigged our rods and stopped at Lochipoca Grocery for sunflower seeds and drinks before driving to our farm. Kelsey loves sunflower seeds, but she has to have the shelled kind because she does not have enough teeth to eat them whole. She threw sticks to coach and scout while I readied the tackle and the boat. For the next two hours, I had the pleasure of getting soundly whipped in a private fishing tournament with my daughter. She stopped fishing after catching exactly 50 bluegills because she was tired. In between getting her fish off the hooks, fixing tangles, and paddling the boat, I managed to catch about half that many. We'll let them all go except for the few that she let me give to scout. She called her grandfather, who was an avid angler, from my truck as I put away the equipment, and she let him know that she had beaten me resolutely. Last week, our whole family went deep-sea fishing in the Gulf. Kelsey and I both had rides, but I rarely touched my own. I spent most of the afternoon on the bow of the swoop, baiting her hooks and helping with the big ones. This was her first time fishing in the ocean, and she took to it like a pro. We caught two sharks, a barracuda, a black grouper, and a bushel of snapper. The highlights for her were the flying fish as they evaded our wake, and a pot of dolphin that fished and played near our last stop. The highlights for me were the trip back to port. She and I went to the cabin to cool off, and she laid her head on my leg to take a nap. I sat and played with her hair, and I marveled at how much she looks like her mother. I was entranced as I watched her sleep, felt her muscles twitch as she dreamed, and felt the warmth of her breath on my skin. It was one of the purest, happiest moments of my life. I thank God every day for giving me a little girl who wants to go fishing with her dad. I have never been happier than the moments I have spent with a little girl in a little boat on a little pond in Alabama. I have chased a million dreams in this lifetime, and I have experienced many wonderful adventures, but they all pale in comparison to the feelings I receive when she and I are together. I try to consciously savor these moments because I know that they will end too soon. A million years before I am ready to give her up, she will lose interest in me. Oh, I know that she will always love me because her heart is immense. But one Sunday after church, she will want to go to the mall with a friend instead. She will one day realize that I did not hang the moon, and I'm just a man with many shortcomings. And of course, one day I will not be the most important man in her life. I know these days are coming, and I already dread the hole that will form in my heart. But I try not to dwell on the inevitable. I will try not to let her know that I have trepidations about her growing up. I'll try to keep my fears and my sadness at bay, and I will not let them taint the few precious moments that I have with her. Growing up is difficult for everything, everyone, and I do not want to add to her challenges with my own insecurities. If God would grant me one prayer for her future... I would simply ask that she finds whatever it is that makes her happy. She has helped me understand the world a little better. I know that there are men on the opposite side of the world who neither look like me nor speak like me. They have different religions, values, governments, and educations. My perspective on their world has been limited by my own ignorance, and I admit that I do not understand many things about them. But I'm certain that these men have daughters. And I believe that they love them as I love Kelsey. I hope they go fishing together. Deep inside, we are all the same. But these are complex thoughts, and I will digest them in the deep hours of the night as I struggle to sleep. For now, I have a rod to rig with a beetle spin, two dogs to load up in a truck, and a little girl to take fishing. I'll read one more if you'll bear with me. If you want me to get off, I'll, I'll go to the next one. This one is, uh, <clears throat> is one that I wrote to my wife. This is very difficult for me to be uh, intimate and vulnerable in, in front of people, but I, I feel fairly comfortable here tonight, so here this today. This is called The Girl in My Dreams. Within the most secret depths of my mind lives a girl. Sometimes I can see her clearly, and at other times she appears to me through a cloud. She is often at my side, so close that I can feel the warmth of her skin. Other times she gazes at me from afar, giving me plenty of space to exercise my independence. Whether she is near or far, and whether her image is clear or misty, I have always known that she was with me. I believe that she was first a dream, an apparition that I conjured as a youth, She began to take a more certain form through the fantasies and torments of my adolescence, although I did not recognize her. She later began changing rapidly with no two characteristics staying the same for more than a fleeting instance. And then one day, out of the ether of heaven, she appeared to me as definite as the imprint of my own parents. I recognized in a moment a woman who had been in my heart forever. I can see every detail of her face so clearly. At times her hair hangs below her shoulders and is pure chocolate, and in others it is shorter and splashed with gray. I can see her young girl in her face, just exactly as it was the day I met her. As I look again, I notice the earliest wrinkles at the corner of her eyes. These are the signs that assure me that she is aging along with me. She is both young and old at the same time, and she is the most beautiful image a man can behold. What's that she is wearing? I believe those are the same clothes she was wearing on the day she became my obsession. Although that was half a lifetime ago, that is, she has never changed. No, it is a candlelight wedding gown and a lace veil. I've counted each sequin and pleat a thousand times, and I've listened ceaselessly to the whisper of the silk as she walks. She's often wearing a cotton dress, and I can tell that she is heavy with the influence of our children. Or is that the black dress that shows the muscles in her back and the shape of her neck? I cannot tell. There are tears in her eyes today. They are the same tears that fell onto my neck one brisk December evening as we embraced beside the ocean. They're the same ones that are wiped from her eyes in August as we stood together before our families and God. I can taste the tears that she cried when her grandfather died. And these are the same ones that she wept when she first saw our children. Her tears are the manifestations of the happiest and the saddest days of her life. And I know that I've caused far too many. I can smell her. Her hair is clean and healthy, and I long to sleep with my face der- buried deep within it. She keeps sachet in her dresser, and her clothes smell of the lightest scent of flowers. She's wearing the same perfume that I gave her last Valentine's Day, or perhaps that is the lotion that she puts on after her bath. She often smells like a day at the lake or the ocean, and these are the scents of heaven. I can hear her as well. She's reading to Kelsey at bedtime, a book that they have read together on countless evenings. She's giggling with Coley as they play together on the floor before dinner time. When my children's name echo inside my mind, it is always in her voice. I can hear the beating of her heart as I lay my head on her chest, and I can hear the softness of her breathing as we lay together in the depths of the evening. And I can still hear her say in a tremulous voice the most precious words I've ever heard. I will. And I can feel her. She is always close to me, touching my hand or holding my arm. She is sleeping against me because she is always cold. She has the softest skin. She fits with me perfectly, and I cannot imagine holding anyone else. She's soft in all the right places and firm in all the others. She likes to lean against me, and I have forgotten how to stand or to sit without her presence. She will always be 19 and walking into my life for the first time. She's 21 and walking down the aisle of her church in her father's arms. She's 25 and nursing Kelsey in her first home in North Carolina. She's 33 and standing over Coley's crib on his first night home. She's perfectly preserved forever in my memory and my heart. If I speak the languages of men and angels but do not have love, I'm a sounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned but do not have love, then I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly is not selfish, is not provoked, does not keep a record of wrongs, finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And deep in my mind there lives a girl Thank
2: you. Thanks, Bill. I'm going to stay down here, I think. My name's Mark, and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Get this out of my face. Uh, I just... Very excited about being here and looking out here and seeing a lot of friendly faces and the privilege of being able to come up here and share uh, share with you all when Terry asked me to speak on the promises, he asked me to do eight nine and ten and we 've already beaten that to death about how we number them because I, I had them numbered one way, and Terry finally emailed me the list, and i'd misnumbered them as usual and uh, but anyway, we finally got them numbered worked on that. And when I first got here, the, all I could think about was was my first meeting and, you know, how to do this. I actually had the grandiosity the first day to say, Terry, do I need to get a PowerPoint presentation? Because I never had been to, you know, IDAA. (laughs) He said, no, he says, I don't, uh," he says, I don't think you need a PowerPoint presentation. Just, uh, that'd be all right. And so, uh, so I'm up here. But I did think about that. I really felt like I needed to give some context, not to qualify me for being here, but some context to me- give you some idea of how these promises have been true in my life. Uh, the promises are, the 8th, 9th, and 10th promises are, self-seeking will slip away. That's number eight. Number nine, our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. And number 10, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. And... In the abstract, I think one one of the things that struck me about reading these promises was that self-seeking will slip away and fear will leave us. And I've been I've read somewhere, and I don't remember where it is, that a lot of times our our lives are like, and our hearts are like a house that's cluttered up with all kinds of stuff that hinders us from really experiencing God, and that we get well by letting things leave us not by adding things to us. And as we let fear, you know, of fear of economic insecurity and people slip away and and leave us and self-seeking slip away, then, then we become a little bit more empty. And actually, in that emptiness, we become more full. And I, I found that to be a very helpful way to think about these promises. But my story begins uh, growing up in a military family. I grew up in a segregated uh, community. It was not uh, a racial segregation, it was a segregation of class of officers and NCOs. My dad was in was an NCO. And my mother never let us forget that that uh, w- that my father was not an officer. And uh, when you went on base you, you never forgot that. There was a there was an officers club and an NCO club. And never the twain shall meet. And I've, I, I, that really, you know, hit me. And that, that was my whole outlook on life was feeling less than from the time I was a little boy. And like so many people in this room, I determined that I was going to be, be as good as. And so I spent my whole life trying to be as good as. And let me just say parenthetically, talking about the promises today, I had a lot of fear about getting up here and doing this because I feel like such a hypocrite talking about the promises because it sounds like I'm here. I'm a poster child for the promises. And when I was a little kid, my mom used to always say, well, son, did you do your best? Did you do your best? It used to kill me because, of course, you never can do your best. You can always do a little bit better. And so... You know, the promises have, are materializing, but it's almost like one of those Star Trek things, you know, where you've got the transporter and the person's caught halfway there and halfway not there. You know, there's, they're materializing, but they haven't materialized in every respect for me, but they are materializing for me. But I grew up with that chip on my shoulder and thinking that I would just uh, try to, be to work a little bit harder. And I determined pretty early on that I wanted to be in the officer's club. And uh, I went to State University, went to Auburn, and uh, I, uh, you know, push, 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 trying to get ahead, and I decided I want to be a doctor. And I certainly I wanted to be a doctor because of economic insecurity, because we grew up with that a lot. And uh, also, I wanted to be sure no one was ever going to be giving me the orders. I wanted to be the person giving the orders. And uh, I didn't admit that. I used to tell everybody, well, I, you know, I love Jesus and I love science, and so I'm going to be a doctor so I can help people. Well, that's true. But also I wanted to control things, you know, and I wanted to be able to uh, be in charge. And uh, I, I didn't want to have that less than feeling. And so I got to medical school, and guess what? You know, there's an officer's club within the officer's club, you know. <laughs> And, you know, and all of a sudden I realized my dad wasn't a doctor. And this guy over here, his grandfather was a doctor, you know, and he went to Harvard, you know, and, and I went to Auburn. And, and so, you know, I realized there was a difference, you know, and I still wasn't in the officers club, you know, and so I worked and it's like the little engine that could, you know, and I became chief resident, you know, and, and, uh, and 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 this was a time when people, were, everybody was specializing, and primary care was coming in there. And I guess there was just that little rebellious part of me. All my mentors and everybody said, "You know, you're smart enough to be a specialist." <laughs> and I was like, "You know, blank you, I'm going to be a generalist." And part of it was because my attention span—I just didn't—I got bored with anything that I did very long. So I said, "I'm going to be a generalist. I'm going to become Marcus Welby. I'm going into the community." So I left academic medicine, turned my nose on that officer's club, went out into the community because I was the chief resident, and then I went into the community. And all during this time, what does this have to do with alcoholism? I had my first drink when I was 16 years old before prom. Something magical did happen to me, and from the time, during all this pain, that's how I coped. I drank. And I grew up in a Southern Baptist home. We didn't know how to drink, and the only way I knew to drink was to drink to get drunk. And I enjoyed the way alcohol made me feel. And well, I did find out one thing about getting in the officer's club with a bunch of doctors is they had parties, you know, and you got free booze. And I learned pretty quickly what a double was and, you know, all that stuff. So anyway, make a long story longer, I, uh, I got through all of that, still had a lot of anger and resentment, got into private practice and uh, wanted everybody to love me, wanted my patients to love me. Couldn't say no to anybody, you know, sure. Come on, one more, one more. And I started developing a lot of physical symptoms, migraines and backache and all that kind of stuff. And they were serious problems, I'm telling you. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I discovered samples and Lortab and Vicodin and Darvacet and all that, and so I began to medicate myself. And I realized that even in private practice there was, not a, there was an officer's club. And they were called surgeons, you know, and, uh, you know, they, they all believe that they're in the officers club. They know it. And, and, uh, you know, and I was a generalist, you know, and I wasn't, and so, you know, I, I still had that little chip on my shoulder. So after 10 years in practice, I decided that, uh, I was going to become a surgeon. I'm just as good as you are. So, you know, I'm 40 years old. It made perfect sense to me. And I, uh, you know, and I was, I had four children. I was married to a physician, uh, you know, and, Alcohol was still working for me to a degree at that point. Alcohol did work. It still worked. And I was a miserable person. But alcohol at least allowed me to function. And a lot of people in this program say, you know, they talk like they're not really happy with what alcohol did for them. But alcohol worked for me. And drugs worked for me. It allowed me to function. But I went back and did a residency at 40 and, uh, in surgery. And, uh, that was painful. Uh, very painful. That was before resident reform, you know, and we were on every other night. And, uh, it was painful. But, I uh, got through that and, uh, started, then I thought I'd be a urologist. I don't know why, but anyway. I don't know what that's about. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I became a urologist. And, uh, I got, I got into that and I realized, you know, I really like to talk to people more than I do like to cut on them. And I was miserable, and the geographic cure had not worked, and I had uprooted my family and taken them up to, out of the community that we were in, back to an academic medical center. And uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to become a teacher, I'll become an academician. And there's an officers' club in academic medicine. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of rank and stuff. So I got into that and still felt less than. But they had a lot of alcohol available, and the drug detail men—they don't. De- I don't know if you know this, but in academic medicine, they don't detail you. With drugs, without they don't give you free samples of narcotics, at least in our place. So I stopped getting Lortab and all that stuff and started drinking very heavily, because there was no alcohol, there was no drugs no drugs available. And that little boy uh, that felt less than was still feeling less than all the time, trying, struggling. So after my first year in academic medicine, I, I won the Tinsley Harrison Award, which at UAB is a big deal. It's the best teacher in the Department of Medicine, you know. Let me pat myself with both hands. So that was a big deal, but I had this very empty feeling inside. Because inside I knew I didn't deserve that. And if they only knew, and I had to, you know, kiss at, excuse me, uh, so much to, you know, get things, I, I really felt like a fraud. And, um, so anyway, in October of 1994, I wrote myself a prescription for 50 Lortab and 50, uh, had a van and took them. And uh, I woke up in the uh, Brookwood emergency room uh, with an Ewald suit down my throat, charcoal all over my lap, staring into the face of a guy that I knew. You know, doctors hate people that try to commit suicide because we're all about helping people live. And I felt such shame when I woke up and saw that guy and realized I had not succeeded and I asked him, I said, you know, I, and I, I basically told him it was a bad mistake, and I, I had it together, and please let me go home. And guess what? He did. And so the next day I, I went out and did, I ordered some more and did it again. And that time I didn't wake up until I got in the intensive care unit. And and uh, I went away to treatment. I uh, went away to treatment. And the first treatment center I went to was uh, they asked me where I wanted to go. I could go to Menager Clinic or I could go to Harvard. And since I went to Auburn and never went to Harvard, I said, I'll go to Harvard. And so I, they sent me to Boston, and uh, I had the privilege of being admitted to the mental hospital at, you know, McLean Institute, you know, McLean, at, at, uh, part of the Harvard system. And after I was there, they started calling me rapid cycling, bipolar, and all that stuff. It sounded pretty good. And then about the third day, they walked in and said, uh, uh, Mark, uh, you're an alcoholic. And, you know, it's funny, I was kind of relieved. and uh, I went to my first AA meeting that night in the institution. And For the first time in my life, I felt at home. I walked in and just felt like I belonged. Because I was Mark. I wasn't anybody special. I was just Mark. And so it, it was a wonderful adventure. They sent me from there to Talbot. And there are people in here that I saw at Talbot. Some of them I can't remember uh, very well. But uh, after five months in Talbot, I tried to get an A in recovery. Uh, you know, I, I was still trying to get in the officer's club of recovery, you know, uh, you know, and uh, Talbot was kind of the officer's club. And I was going to get, you know, so we had the fist step and we burned it over the grill and all the flames went up and everything. And I did that for about five months. And I said, this is really not working. And so uh, I left Talbot. I left Talbot. They never have invited me back for a revisit. Um, but. Uh, I left Talbot and make a long story longer, I did eventually get so seriously depressed in July of two thousand of the next year, July nineteen ninety five, that they put me in the hospital. I think I may have relapsed, I wasn't ever sure, uh, because I, I think I did drink during that time, but I was so depressed I just it was catatonic. And uh with the help of Alabama Power Company, uh thirteen shock treatments uh over two weeks. I actually started waking up. I woke up. And uh, I met some people in this program and they pointed me to the big book and I started reading it for the first time trying to find how I was like the big, what I was like, how I was like the people in the book instead of how I was different. And it started making sense to me. And I started getting better. And uh, it started getting better. And it's gotten better since then. After three years In recovery, I realized I was in a toxic marriage. It had been toxic, shouldn't, toxic from the beginning. And, uh, I knew I needed to get out of that marriage because it was, it was very unhealthy. And by the way, it was interesting. Joe Persh's, uh, thing was just great on those videos because I could see myself, the obsessive compulsive, you know, doing all those things at one time. But, uh, it took me a year later, after I knew I needed to get divorced, it took me a year later to gather the courage to do it. And I finally did get divorced, and I have four children. That was very, very difficult for everybody, but it was definitely the right thing to do. And um, this talk is about the promises, and so I do want to spend some time talking about how these promises have come true in my life. Uh, self-seeking is slipping away. I'm still very self-centered. I mean. One of the worst things that can happen is to be on the speaker, be a speaker at the end of the meeting, you know, cause you sit there and obsess the whole meeting about, you know, you gotta talk, you know. But, uh, you know, yes, I, but it's slipping away. It's slipping away. And, and I want to talk about how it's slipping away in two areas of my life. The first is with my children. Being a non-custodial parent of four children, and my children are, I've got two in college and two in high school, uh, You know, they didn't want anything to do with me. Um, basically. And, uh, I made that all about me. And I've come to realize as a result of this program that this is, it's not all about me. That my children were wounded. I wounded them. And they were, they brought, they were brought up in a very toxic place. And they're going to need to heal. And it's going to take some time. And I need to get interested in them. And what's going on in their lives instead of writing them an email hoping they're going to write me something back and say we love you or trying to manipulate them with messages on their cell phone and so that's getting better and as I've quit grasping and hold and trying to get their love and kind of backed off and just let them suffer their pain that they need to suffer and grow and heal it's getting better it really is um, Self-seeking also has begun to slip away, really in a big way, in my practice. I've been ashamed all my life about being a primary care doctor until just the last year. And I'm really glad that's what God led me to do because God knew that's exactly what I needed to be doing is primary care internal medicine. That's what I was created to do. I found out what I was supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. And yet I I spent all the years that I was not in recovery and even early recovery I saw every patient encounter as a place for them to make me feel better about myself. For me to go into that room with my agenda, what I needed to get done, my checklist, you know, of all the things we've got to get covered in this visit, it's different now. I see patients in the context of their lives. I know something about my patients now because I, I care to know something about them. And. I really ask myself, you know, just how important is this LDL cholesterol of 160 and this, you know, 80-year-old person who can't afford to buy groceries? You know, how important is it? And, you know, I know something about the people. And so I start off every visit now with, tell me today, how can I help you? That's how I start the visit. How can I help you? And it's just dramatic what that's done to my... To my visits, because patients tell me, you know, what I really need you to do today, doctor, is sign my handicap parking sticker, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, and 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 you know, that's that's all I need to do, you know. I, I really don't, you know, anything else is gravy, you know, but I try to, you know, let self-seeking slip away in that area too, and that's been good. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Mine has changed because. I really don't have a mat on all the time, um, and you know I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in my skin now, and so my attitude is really not less than. I'm pretty content with who I am right now, and that's that's a real gift from this program. And not every day. I mean, I'm not a poster child. I started this off. You know, I'm not a poster child for recovery, but but it's it's pretty good most days. Um, my sponsor really helped me with something. Uh, several years into recovery. You talked about fear this morning with Jerry, you know, and I started every day thinking about all the bad things that could happen. And I would look at every week and think about all the bad things that can happen. I mean, last week, it still happens. I mean, I go online on my Quicken and everything, and the checks, you know, download the checks, and it said, bank charge, 1750. You know, I just freaked out, you know. And automatically I have all these scenarios, you know, and it turns out to be nothing, you know. But that's the way my mind works. But my my sponsor basically said, Mark, why don't you start expecting something good to happen? Why don't you go into each day thinking something good's going to happen instead of something bad's going to happen? You know, and when you face a situation that you're uncertain about, expect the best thing to happen. Instead of the worst thing to happen. And so that's not natural for me. That goes against my nature. But with the help of this program, I'm learning to do that. And more than, more times than not, not every time, but more times than not, something good does happen. And I've spared myself. But a lot of times I have a hard time with that still because I still expect bad things to happen. But that outlook of, of, that something good can happen is is there. And the other area that this that this manifests itself is optimism about my children. I believe something good is ultimately going to happen in each one of their lives. And something good is going to happen today. And I actually can get up some mornings, not every morning. Sounds like one of our people back there. Uh, but I can get up I can get up most mornings and, not most mornings, I won't even say most mornings, but occasionally, and I have this feeling of sort of anticipation. Anticipation. Maybe, you know, who am I going to meet today? Who's God going to bring into my life today? Something good's going to happen today, you know, and a lot of times it does. And then fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. It hasn't left me, but it will leave us, and it is in the process of leaving me. But I'm really not that afraid of people anymore because I'm finally comfortable in my skin, and that's that's what this program has given me. And it's a gift. It's nothing I did. It's nothing I, you know. Some people ask, how did it how did it work? It just happened. It just it did it did materialize. But I, I, you know, I'm I'm really not afraid of most people. Now I still get afraid of some people, but it's leaving me. As far as economic insecurity, I, I grew up without a lot, and I probably will always be a little bit afraid of economic insecurity. But one of the things this program has taught me is about responsibility. And that's something I knew nothing about. And what does that mean? That means I finally got quickened in my computer, and I've got everything loaded, and I track all my transactions, and I know what my balances are, and I pay off my credit cards. And I can, I I print out a report every month at the end of the month and I know where every penny I spend goes. And I can keep myself on a budget. And that's helped my fear of economic insecurity to do that. That's helped. And, you know, and being, and, and not buying bigger house than I can afford. That's helped my fear of economic insecurity. My monthly payment's reasonable now. And that has really helped my fear of economic insecurity. It, 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 so, but it's still there, but it's better. And then lastly, I want to just, just touch on the change in outlook about my mood disorder. I'm, there's no question in my mind I have a mood disorder. And I've done a lot of reading about this and study and talked to a lot of people, and I'm very comfortable with that, that. There's a little place in my brain called 24A Broca's area that doesn't work right. And uh, I know that. And I've experimented a few times with trying to get myself off medication and reducing my dose on my own. And it's very insidious. But I wake up usually, you know, 10 days to 2 weeks into my experiment and look around and my house is falling apart. There's, dishes are full of, you know, sinks full of dishes. Bills have gone unopened. I'm, you know, it's not working. And then it will, the light bulb will go off and say, you know, you should take your medicine. And I do, and things get better. And I had the remarkable thing happen recently where I actually started feeling bad, and I, I had depression for several several weeks in a row, and I actually had the the thought, call your doctor. You know it, it, you know, that was a very novel thought and I did. And you know he brought me in, and we sat down, and he talked, and we said, he said, "You know, you're, this, this dose needs to be adjusted, and we need to change this medicine to this medicine." And he did, and guess what? It went away pretty quickly, and it hadn't come back, and that's a grace. I understand that. But, um, you know, but it doesn't all go away. And that's what Jerry Groper said this morning. You know, sometimes in these rooms we get to thinking that, you know, you're going to sort of arrive one day to the promised land, you know. Well, you know, I haven't arrived. And you know that song, Rainy Days and Mondays Always Get Me Down? Well, guess what? Rainy days and Mondays still get me down, you know. And I think it's something up here. I, I, I do. I mean, when I, w- I there's Mondays I wake up and it's, it's cloudy outside, it's raining, it's Monday morning. I just get this kind of sick feeling in my pit of my stomach and, you know, and I, and in the times past when I was drinking, that was a good reason to drink or take a drug or just stay in bed with the covers pulled over me and have my, you know, spouse at that time call in and call me in sick, you know. But now I do the next right thing. I get up, I fix the coffee, I do my exercises, I do my meditation. And I actually went online and I created a playlist for real audio of Monday morning tunes. It's a playlist of CDs. And it starts off with Revelee. You know? And, uh, after that, you know, You Are My Sunshine. And then Zippity Doodah from Songs of the South. You know, and I've got about a dozen songs. And so on those Monday mornings, I just go, I sort of stumble out of the bed and go over there and get my cup of ambition and, you know, hit, hit real audio. And I'm, you know, it starts playing all that music, you know, while I shave, you know, and I keep going. And the most wonderful thing about self-seeking slipping away is this program has given me the wonderful thing of being able to go to work in the morning. And just go on in, even though I, I mean, it's still there. The depression feelings are still there. But I go on anyway. And I call my sponsor and he says, it'll pass. And guess what? Usually by about 10 o'clock, I'm back in the groove again. And the real gift that God gave me by making me a primary care internist is I have lots of people who complain. You know, they have problems. And, you know, and so I get out of myself pretty quickly in the morning. I mean, right out of the gate, I have people telling me how bad things are for them. And so I really don't have time to think about all my problems very long. And usually by 10 o'clock it lists And I think of mood disorders like the weather. You know, the weather just comes and it goes and it comes and goes. But now with this program, I have an umbrella, you know. And it may be a rainy day, but I just put my umbrella up and I just keep going. And, you know, guess what? A few hours, the, the clouds sort of blow out of the way and the sun starts peeking through, and it's okay. And I get through it. And uh, and, and, and the, the, one of the last things I want to say, too, is this program has taught me about responsibility. Um, I probably don't do as much 12-step work in the program as I hope to someday, but quite honestly, right now, my time I mean, I've got four kids I've got to get through college, you know, and that's about responsibility. And I'm not overworking, but, you know, I've, I've got to stay healthy. I've got to do my job. I do my recovery work, but, I mean, I, I work a lot, not too much. But the most loving thing I can do to practice the principles of this program and all my affairs is pay for my kids, get my kids educated and pay my child support every month on time. That's a loving thing that I can do to practice this program, and I do that. Um, That's about all I've got. I'm very grateful to be here. I uh, I want to say one final thing. I used to think very negative things about my childhood. You know, it's like... You know, I, oh, yeah, I grew up. Man, we were poor. You know, we had five kids. My dad made $250 a month. He was a staff sergeant in the military. It was awful. God, it ain't awful. It ain't it awful? You know, and I, and I you know, made my parents feel guilty about it for years and, you know, all that stuff, the dysfunctional family. Well, when I was in the fifth grade, my dad was stationed in Mobile, Alabama, at Brooklyn Field. And this week, I got in the car, and I drove over to Brooklyn Field. And I actually found the little bungalow that I lived in 40 years ago. It's a crack house now, but it's still there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's still there. And I found it. There were a bunch of kids in the hood out there in front of it, you know, and I, I rolled the window down and said, hey, guys, I used to live here. And they looked at me like, yeah, man, you know. But... And, uh, but I, you know, I, and all the street signs had been torn down. and I asked them, I said, I said, what street is this? And they said, Airman Drive. And that's where we lived, 112 Airman Drive. And, you know, I was on the right street. That was a gift. And I drove around where I lived and I drove around to the officer's quarters, which used to be up, you know, on the other part of the thing. <laughs> and all of a sudden there wasn't any pain there anymore, you know, and I had a lot of happy memories. Of those times on the bay, playing on bales of cotton that fell off of barges and poling around like Tom Sawyer and, you know, picking wild blackberries down there near the bayside. I had a, I had a fun childhood. So I don't regret the past. I don't regret the shock treatments. I apologize to some of y'all in this room because I don't remember you because quite honestly, my electrical treatment took away some parts of my memory, but I'm not sad about that either. I'm glad I don't remember some things. <laughs> You know? <laughs> you know? And, uh, but anyway, we've got, we've got about 20 minutes and, uh, you know, just like we did in the beginning, uh, in the first part of this, there are a lot of people in this room, a lot of wisdom, a lot of, a lot of experience, strength, and hope. Please come up to the microphone and, and share how these promises have materialized in your life. Thank you.
3: My name's Martha, and I'm an alcoholic, and um, I'm specifically coming up here to say thank you, Mark. And, um, you know, one of the great things about being in the program and not just, like, reading a book and following steps all by yourself is that you get to know people. And um, I, I don't actually know Mark very well, but in 1996, before we had a Caduceus in Tuscaloosa, we used to pile up in a van every Wednesday night and... About three or four of us drive over. And um, I just feel overwhelmed because, and I don't want this to sound wrong, but I thought you were hopeless. <laughs> I know this is, and I'm, I am so overwhelmed. I mean, I really am. And you weren't, you weren't crazy or depressed then. You were really angry. But I am just so overwhelmed. This program is so full of miracles, and you are definitely a miracle. And I'm so glad you spoke this morning. Sorry.
4: My name is Jeff, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm going to do something I abhor when other people do it, but I'll do it anyway. I'm going to digress from the topic for a second, because I heard our first speaker talk about they weren't sure they'd done enough to get here. Um, Twenty years ago, I was by far the youngest person in my home group. I was group 41 in St. Louis. Um, it was a men's step close meeting. They told me to tell us your name, sit down, and shut up. Um, and that's the truth. Anybody has been around for a while know that's the truth. Um, and I heard things like, you still got to watch, you can't be an alcoholic. Um, You're a panty waist. Um, so on and so forth. And I figured out a few things along the way. And I, and I don't know a whole lot about psychobabble. I'm just a dumb surgeon. Um, but I figured out that The only three things that can happen to an alcoholic is either get locked up, covered up, or sobered up. And those are the only real bottoms. I've stopped asking people I sponsor whether they've hit their bottom. Everything else is just a way station on the way down. And once you figure out that that's the last stop, then, you know, you've seen the bottom. Now, the only question I ask people I sponsor is, have you suffered enough? if you've suffered enough you're ready to take certain steps so if you see the bottom and you've suffered enough and the bad news is Alabama PHP can't tell you you've suffered enough Alabama PHP can tell you they think you've suffered enough they think your patients have suffered enough and they think your family suffered enough but only, only I can figure out whether I had suffered enough and I also had to be convinced that this was the last stop because this is a simple program, but it's not easy. And I've had to work hard in sobriety. And um, there was no other way for me, and I was convinced that if I stayed out there, I'd be dead. I didn't do everything some of the old-timers did. I didn't lose a wife because I didn't have a wife. I didn't lose kids because I didn't have kids. Um, But I lost a lot of other things. And I don't worry too much about the yets. The yets didn't bother me. There's a lot of yets I still have if I want to go back out there. I didn't like the agains, and I had a lot of them. Um, And so I figured out that if I didn't stop, I'd be dead, and there was no other way for me. And that's what my bottom was, and that's when I surrendered, and that's when I knew I'd suffered enough. That's all I got, thanks.
0: Good morning. I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Bob. Yeah. Uh, yesterday morning, I was at the uh, early bird meeting, and I was. Sit- it was in a circle, and uh, the topic was: you will neither. It was one. Of the- it was the third promise. You'll neither regret the past nor wish, wish to close the door on it. And uh, we we're going around, and uh, I. I- I'm sitting there and, uh, the, the guy sitting right across from me starts talking. He introduces himself and I, uh, as usual, I, you know, I was in Bobby's place. I, I wasn't really, I was kind of listening, but I, and then all of a sudden he's pointing at me and he, and he says, uh, and, and that character over there, I haven't seen him in, in 30 years. I don't know if he's in here, but, uh, it was my friend Harry and Harry and I had uh, been interns up at Albany Medical Center in 1973 together. And uh, and we were crazy. We, we, we were already... Uh, well, I, I can only speak for me. I was already uh, well into, into my disease uh, as an intern. Um, and it had nothing to do with being on call every other night. I was already well into my disease when I graduated high school. Uh, you know, if I had been at Burger King, I would have been well into my disease because that 's where I was going uh, with a vengeance you know with with a purpose um, uh, but but in terms of these promises i had been I had been carrying around an amends that I owed Harry uh, for thirty years, and I had been uh, afraid that I might see Harry uh, Harry lives up in Vermont, and I live down in in uh, uh, close to, to New York City, it was very unlikely that I was gonna, uh, uh, actually see Harry crossing the street. But, but I, I would actually, if, if I was going upstate, or, or going up into the country, up in the, in, in, in the, in the mountains, um I would actually go around Harry's town, which is, he, he, he works up in, in southern Vermont near a ski resort, and, and I've, I've gone past it, and actually going around it for fear that I might actually uh, get out of the car uh, and, and see Harry, and that's 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 what happens if you don't do the ninth step. So now I can actually go through that town, uh, and 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 perhaps even uh, perhaps even uh, you know go visit uh, Harry up there because I've always loved Harry. I just. Uh, I was afraid that he'd tell me he never liked me. You know, I was afraid of all that stuff that that Bobby does in his head. Uh, if he doesn't follow this program, uh, the way that the steps say to do it, so I just want to tell you how grateful I am uh, to be here. I mean, my higher power just—he uh, he overwhelms me. I, and 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 uh, at every meeting that I'm at, where my sponsor is at. I have to pay homage to him. He's out there somewhere. Oh, there he is. There he is. Because I don't go anywhere without my sponsor. (laughs) Thanks, Mel.
5: Um, My name is Vivian. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. There's a lot of people here. Um, I... Yeah, just turn around and look and get overwhelmed like you can when you're standing here. Um, I wanted to come to the Promises meeting because they're so beautiful, and I don't know how you count them, but they always end up sounding good. And um, thank you for the thing you wrote to your daughter. When my dad would write me, whether it would be like a prescription pad length or whether it would be like he'd get really toasted and write like pages and pages, you know, it just meant so much. And, um, and talking about your... your um, mental problems outside because it's like I got my dad would be like you got the alcoholism genes from our side which were the good genes according to him and the (laughs) the the bipolar genes from my mom you know and I have them my chromosomes can't be changed unless I'm on Star Trek or something where they can because yeah I got sober and I'm like thanks I'm an alcoholic and I have to take all this crap you know and and my dad's one of the guys that's been wearing the same shirt for four days. So, I mean, <laughs> but I'm so proud of him. I came to AA for him to get sober. And I would, um, and, like, finally Doug Talbot caught his butt. And he is sober, and he's, like, the dad of all always wanted. And we go to meetings together. Um, and and fear of people. I'm still so just standing up there shaking. And I hope one day I can um Share at a meeting like this, and not be scared, or maybe that 's not the idea you just come and share, and you are scared, no matter how many years you have and um, and economic insecurity it 's like I you know growing up a doctor 's kid, you felt like you never worried about it, and talking to some people here it 's like you guys got paid like a dollar twenty an hour like after you file in your student loans and how many hours you have to work during residency. And, you know, some people are mortgaged up to their butt, you know. And I've never missed a meal. And I'm not going to go back to Atlanta and be standing out there like we'll work for food with my dog, you know. And I'm I'm going to be okay. And I've learned so much. And the other thing is, I can't believe how many drugs you guys took. I mean, part of me and you, when you're talking, like, I took 50 or 60 or 70 pills a day. I'm like, holy shit, man. You and there's part of me is like, appalled. And there's part of me is like, you got, probably got the best buzz in the entire world. So... <laughs> And um, and then we're like writing prescriptions for yourself, I like poke my dad and I'm like, can you do that? You know? And it's <laughs> I mean the only thing I know about medical profession is um, what I've seen on ER, and I'm sure that's like so realistic. But um, <laughs> and um, and I appreciate you guys letting me be here. I feel like I'm starting to ramble, but I just wanted to try to get up here and share. And um, and I found out in recovery, you don't try. You are in recovery or you're not. And um, And I am, my dad is, you guys are, and it's been a great four days, and thanks for letting me into your world, which I've always been very intimidated by, so thanks.
6: I'm I'm Bill, I'm an alcoholic. I might not have come here, and I heard uh, uh, you had, um, people get up and say they hear their story. I heard a couple of people in my head, um, and I appreciated hearing those parts of my story that I could really identify with, the Officers Club. Uh, um, I, I was so saddened because uh, the first speakers talked about the things that were so important to me that this disease took away from me at a time when I was able to be so cynical as to say I didn't really want them. And um, it got to the point where I didn't even want, you know, I'll say that I didn't want uh, being a doctor. I didn't want being a person at one point, and... um, and I had to come into this program to hear that I had resentments because I thought, thought I was a good guy, you know, following Jesus and, you know, Albert Schweitzer and and all that. But in fact, um, when I got into the program, they asked me to pray for my enemies. And I had to tell my sponsor that I really liked that idea lately because it allowed me to keep the list in my mind. <laughs> and... Um, I realized that I would wake up in the morning and I would end up having the image of myself struggling. And this, this was the complexity that I could not handle. I, I was sure... My mind was such that I knew that I couldn't kill myself because they'd take away my guns. And I didn't want to not be able to hunt. So... I ended up thinking that what I needed to do is set myself on fire with gasoline and that uh, that would be the protest. I'm still protesting. I'm protesting a lot. Um, and I, 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 and, I, and I, a lot of things in recovery were such that I had to do it long enough that I bored myself. And then I, I even stopped whining after a while, but uh, that took a lot. Um, and I still do sometimes. But the problem was that I didn't know where to set myself on fire. And I saw myself eventually pouring gas on myself in front of the College of Physicians and Surgeons and as I was going through a divorce at that time and engaged in struggles with them that I was going to be running back and forth on fire and that I'd end up somewhere in between in front of a 7-Eleven and nobody would know what I was protesting. (laughs) Thanks to this program, um, I realized that I didn't know what I was protesting after a while and um, I just really appreciate that there's a place where I can come, and feel like I'm I'm just not so outside because I um, I had this sense that I it really the only thing that worked for me is a metaphor that God made a mistake I was supposed to be on a different planet, and uh, the only things I could relate to were Star Trek, you know, so I. Uh, I, I now have all those other shows back in my life, like Little House on the Prairie, and um, you know Dr. Welby and Dr. Kildare and all that stuff. Thank God I still have Star Trek, but I uh, I really appreciate all these other parts, and and I don't have to watch horror movies, and I don't have to look in the mirror and not like who I'm seeing, and I really appreciate uh, IDAA. And uh, people at home know, know that I get escalatingly crazy and then they're all really happy when I come here uh, because <laughs> they think there's hope after because I was thought to be hopeless. Uh, thank you.